Well, hi there. This is Matt from Trinity Church, Brighton. Uh, just a quick note on our recording for this week. Uh, this week we were joined by Colin Taylor from Trinity Church, Woodcroft. He preached for us our next sermon in our Life from Chaos Genesis series. Uh, now, unfortunately, we had a slight technical issue with Colin's recording. So what we've done, uh, Colin essentially preached a very similar sermon or the same sermon a couple of months earlier at Trinity Church Woodcroft. Uh, so what we've done is we're just going to give you the recording from a couple of months ago at Woodcroft uh, instead of the sermon he preached at Brighton. I uh, trust it will still be helpful. Uh, and as always, thanks for listening. So enjoy. Today's reading is from Genesis 12, starting at verse 10 and going to be finishing at the end of chapter 13. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar as well, was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked, and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, 
to the north and to the south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. Hello again. Morning. So, how do you make decisions? How do you decide what to do? Because um, life's full of choices, isn't it? You know, um, and very often it's really not that obvious what the right decision is, and it. It feels like the greater the consequences of what you've got to decide, the less easy it is to know if you're on the right track. I mean, it starts in kindy, doesn't it? You know, what toy should I play with today? And then primary school, uh, who should I play with? Should I play on the oval or on the playground? What sports? High school, what subjects should I do? Which friends, what subculture should I join? Should I be a goth or a jock? Or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, then work, should I go to work or should I go and study? What job should I do? Should I marry? Should I have kids? Should I rent? Should I buy? Buying is the thing that people used to do with houses if you're a younger generation. Um, what about retirement? What should I do in retirement? When should I retire? And before you get to any of that, you've got to decide what socks you're going to wear today. How do we decide what's best? Well, today we're looking at these two incidents in Abraham's life. So is it Abram at this point in Genesis becomes Abraham? In Abram's life where he had choices to make, two kind of contrasting circumstances, what to do when facing famine and what to do in times of fortune, famine and fortune. And we usually can't know exactly how our decisions will pan out, but what we'll learn from Abram's example is how to make decisions faithfully, faithfully. So just to get us up to speed with where we are in Genesis here, um, God has kept persevering in grace. He's kept generously providing the opportunity uh, for humanity of a great life in, in joyful relationship with him. And humanity, we've just kept slapping his hand away to do things our own way. And as we meet Abram, God would be completely just and fair and generous, actually, in leaving things as they were. So humanity eking out a living, enjoying God's good creation, albeit subject to the frustration and pain and ultimately death that come because of our sin. Could have left things as they were, totally fair. But God chose to give us more, to bless us. That is to show us his favor, restore us to what we're made for, right, full, joyful relationship with him. And his plan to bless us begins with one man, Abram. And Genesis tells us about Abram's great faith, uh, trusting in God's bare promise, no details yet, that he will father a great nation, his name will be made great, and he'll occupy a land that God gives him. So it's a great example of faith for us. But Abram's no one-dimensional biblical hero. So when I was growing up, my mum and dad used to have regular get-togethers with their old friends from youth group. 
But they'd always come back comparing us to their friends' kids. So we always dreaded about hearing about how Timothy was top of his class in everything, captain of the sports team, built orphanages in his gap year, and his bedroom was always immaculately tidy. I don't know if they did go around the house doing inspections of kids' bedrooms or something. But yeah, what a loser. That's what maybe that. But we don't get that kind of edited, rosy version of Abram. As an example for us to learn from in our faith, he's not so much a biblical hero as an encouraging failure. Because Abram stuffs up, he gets it wrong. He's plain old selfish and disobedient sometimes, as we'll see today. And yet in Galatians, the Apostle Paul says of him, So also Abram believed, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abram really is an encouragement to us, because for Abram or anyone else in the Old Testament, it was never about... Uh, being in right relationship with God was never about doing, getting to, you know, 51% or more of doing the right stuff to get you over the line with God. No, it's always been about a heart orientation of faith, of trusting and believing in God to save us, a faith that works itself out in what we do. Always been that way. So two examples today, how that goes down with Abram in times of famine and how that goes down in times of fortune. So a uh, rough outline today, just famine, fortune, and then we'll bring it together with talking about faith. Famine, fortune, faith. So first, famine. So as we get to today's passage, we find Abram being a really faithful guy, uh, wandering the land that God has taken him to and, and has promised to his offspring. And he's building altars to proclaim and call upon the one true God in a land that worships many gods. But then things start to go a bit wrong. So how will Abram respond? So verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. So Abram's, uh, his pl- Egypt, going to Egypt is his plan, but there's a complication. Verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. That's a good start, isn't it? Well done, Abram. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, oh, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but will let you live. So say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And sure enough, Pharaoh does take a fancy to Sarai, treating Abram really generously. But poor Sarai, we can assume, is treated by Pharaoh as one of his own wives. So let's look back on what Abram has done. How did he decide what to do? Well, on one level, he's just doing what nomadic tribesmen do. Follow the water. Depending on the season, you just go where the water is. The Egypt, Egypt's got the Nile, so it makes sense to go to Egypt. We can kind of understand that. But there are two problems with this reasoning. Well, first, I mean, poor Sarai. He, he's willing to sacrifice her honor and dignity and her control over her own body for the sake of his own safety. And he seems to think that's totally okay. So his morality is all twisted. But secondly, Abram's failed to factor in to his decision-making what God has promised him. We can understand his fear of famine until we remember 
what God has said he'll do to it with Abram. So back to verse, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is what God promised Abram. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Amazing promises. And to this point, Abram's taken God at his word, uh, enough to uproot his whole existence and go to this foreign land, Canaan. But in his deciding to escape to Egypt from the famine, Abram's missed the obvious. That if these promises of God are true, well, Abram and Sarah can't be about to die yet. See, Abram's decisions here are made without the eyes of faith. These decisions are made without the eyes of faith. So Abram is like this truck. Thanks, Robert. Got a slide there. So B&Q, for context, B&Q is like Bunnings in England. But Abram's like this truck. He's forgotten God's promises of greatness, let alone survival. So his decisions are all about trying to do it himself. And it's run him into trouble. Yet, despite Abram's lack of faith, God is still faithful to his promises. So Abram leaves the land of blessing promised to him to seek blessing elsewhere in Egypt. And yet, God makes sure that he still ends up rich with animals and servants. Abram is supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And yet, Pharaoh's household becomes cursed because of Abram's lies. Um, Because God upholds that promise to curse those who curse or dishonor Abram. Instead of Abram being a blessing to Egypt, to the nations, they are a blessing to him, leaving him with his wealth, despite all the trouble he caused. So in the end, it's not Abram's faithfulness on show here, but God's faithfulness. And we must be cautious. We must be very careful not to end up putting our faith in our faith. I'll try and explain what I mean. Because you hear and read this idea from a lot of Christian sources. And it's a subtle difference. The idea goes that if your prayer isn't being answered, or if you're not progressing in a struggle with sin, or you're not maturing in faith, it's because you haven't got enough faith is how the idea goes. Or you haven't got the, quite, the right quality of faith. So it's almost like taught like God is just waiting in the wings to come and help you until your faithometer gets to the, to the right level. And only then will he step in and intervene. But do you see the danger of the idea? That turns our faith into something we do, like a work that we do to kind of coerce God into doing stuff. But in this example, this shows us that the truth is that God's, it's his God's faithfulness that, that saves Abram, not Abram's faith. And throughout the Bible, God consistently responds to our failure with his faithfulness. Our failure with his faithfulness. So faith that is considered righteous by God is a faith that trusts in him to keep his promises, not faith that trusts in our ability to coerce God into action. 
So how does Abram's decision-making in time of famine help us in our decision-making? Well, it shows us that we need to have the eyes of faith, to hold on to the promises that we have in Jesus. So for Abram then, his blessings were going to be a great name, a land of his own, an offspring. So you remember that helpful framework Mark taught us last week, um, thinking about God's rule, kingdom? God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And you find that theme through any bit of the Bible. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. The promises we hold on to, um, where we're up to now as Christians with faith in Jesus, the eyes of faith we look with are even greater. So our names are great because in Christ we're chosen children of God. We have a seat at God's family table alongside Jesus. There's no more privileged and honored a position in all creation, in all time. And that's our position. Our offspring, our family, our nation, if you like, is fellow believers in Christ. So vastly different as we are from each other. We're united as one, one people reborn by the same Holy Spirit. The very existence of us as church here and around the world is declaring to the forces of evil, you've lost your numbers up. And our place with God is not a piece of the Middle East, but God dwelling in us and among us now by his Spirit. And when Christ returns, the promise of a heavenly city of eternal life and joy with God, free from sin and evil. So when we hold on to these promises, these realities, well, that profoundly affects what we decide to do. And when I worked as a radiographer in x-ray, you'd notice that some people, sometimes you'd have the x-ray room door propped open and an orderly or someone would come along a bit tentative because they didn't quite understand how the x-ray machine worked and they weren't sure if they were going to be made radioactive or something. They were completely safe, but they just needed the facts of how things really were. Well, when we remember the facts of how things really are, those promises of God, that your identity is in Christ, well, then we won't build a life trying to squeeze enough feeling of security out of our job, out of our spouse or education or whatever it is. Instead, we'll sub- remembering those promises of God, we'll submit those things under the bigger picture of enjoying God's blessing and what promotes and glorifies him. As it says in Hebrews 11, it, say, it puts it like this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. For this is what the ancients, Abram included, were commended for. So with those eyes of faith, that hope, that hope and assurance means that we can endure our times of famine or whatever our particular struggle or persecution is, knowing that everything will be all right in the end and not falling into the trap of trying to fix everything for ourselves. Because our confidence is not in ourselves, but in God. So that's Abram in a time of famine. Um, How does he get on in a time of fortune? Our next section, time of fortune. 
Abram returns to Canaan from Egypt with his nephew Lot, and he ends up back where he started. So chapter 13 from verse 3. From the Negev, Abram went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. I think we're supposed to read into that, that Abram is returning to faith. Um, He's lacked faith, been selfish and caused problems, but now he turns back to God. And he builds an altar at the end of this chapter as well. So I think we're supposed to read everything in the middle as, as what shows Abram trusting in God's promises of having the eyes of faith. So he goes back to where he started. And we must never be ashamed, just go back to the basics of Christianity. Okay, we never graduate from the gospel. So by God's grace, Abram now, by now is really wealthy. He's absolutely loaded. And so is Lot. They've got loads of livestock and silver and gold. You know, they're the front cover of Canaan life, nomadic farmer monthly. They're, you know, they're really successful. The trouble is they're too successful and the land can't support um, Abram and his guys, Lot's, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites who were already there. And so quarrels break out between Abram's herders and Lot's. So you see, even then, in a fallen world with sin in it, the material blessing of wealth is not straightforward. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth, but it comes with its own set of dangers of leading us into sin and, more importantly, helping us to forget God and forget trusting in him. But Abram seems to have learned from his mistakes and he acts with generosity and wisdom. So just as for God, the relationship of faith is more important, for Abraham, the family relationships are more important than holding on to his wealth. So as the elder of Lot, Abraham could have just said, look, I'll take the best patcher and you go off and have that scrub down there. But because Abram's so secure in knowing God will provide for him, he's willing to be generous to Lot. So chapter 13, verse 9. Is not the whole land before, before you? Look, let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. In other words, you get first dibs lot. Because to Abram, it's all good because it's all being promised to him by God. So Lot has a look around, verse 10. Lot looked around and he saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's a few things that the author includes here to help us see that Lot is making not necessarily the wrong decision, an immoral choice, but it's certainly an unwise choice. It's likened to Eden, from which humanity has been banished. It's likened to Egypt, the scene of Abram's spiritual failure. And it's East, with which Cain was associated with, um, with God's curse. And there's a big warning note, a big sort of, you know, minor plane with Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 13. Now, the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. I mean, right now, Lot is just pitching his tent near Sodom. Later on, he not only lives in there, he seems to be some sort of elder on the town hall council in Sodom. In any case, right now, Lot has got his goggles of wealth on 
not his goggles of faith. Abram's happy to be anywhere in the land that God's promised him, but Lot is distracted and putting his faith in danger by being distracted by what is shiny and easy right now without factoring in God's future promises. And it's so easy to give ourselves permission to do what everybody else does, isn't it? To, to play down the danger of following the crowd, going for what's easy, to our faith. You know, I've got to sort out the garden. I've got to get that renovation done. It doesn't matter if I miss church a few times. Uh, before you know it, you're at church. You're not at church more often than you are at church. And then you're hardly here at all. And eventually you're not here at all. And in the meantime, our kids get the message loud and clear. Uh, Bunnings or sport is just as important as God. And we'll just fit him in where it works for us. And all these things are good things. It's good to look after your home and play sport and catch up with family and friends and all the other things that compete for our attention. But they've got to be part of that bigger picture of trusting in and lining our lives up with God's promises. Of keeping Jesus the main thing. Because Jesus is who our life is all about. Do you know that? Do you know that the blessing that you have in Jesus for all eternity is far greater than anything this world can offer? Can I remind you of that? God is so good. Life lived for Jesus is the best life there is, however tough it gets. The blessings that you have in Jesus are far greater than anything this world has to offer. So Lot goes east. What about Abram? Well, verse 14 and 15, God expands on and gets more specific with his promise of land. All you can see in every direction. Verse 16, more offspring than you can count. So having come back to God by faith, God meets Abram's past failure with faithfulness. Again and again, God meets our failures with faithfulness. Jesus is completely, perfectly, he was completely, perfectly faithful out of sheer grace. When we trust in his promises, we're counted right with God. Our failures forgiven, paid for on the cross. God is never thwarted in his plans to bless us by our failure to trust him to do that. God's never thwarted in his plans to bless us by our failure to trust him to do that. So let's bring it together in our last section, faith. We need to cling tight to God and his promises fulfilled in Jesus. And doing that, clinging tight to God's promises, transforms every decision we make. Um, to illustrate, God, Jesus told this parable that shows us this. This is from Matthew 13. There are two parables, actually. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, went in his, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, he had and bought it. Nothing else was important as knowing God and his promises. And knowing that, knowing God's promises helps us to know what's really important in life, where to seek security, how to grow. And the rest of the world, often with the best intentions, the rest of the world has got these things wrong. And the rest of the world will do its best to get you to believe in other promises. So being a disciple of Jesus was never meant to be a solo sport. You need to be a committed member of a church. We can't do it alone. And we can't keep living by faith without your help, without each other's help. So if something or someone in life, some commitment, some worry, some circumstance is keeping you away from fully committing to God and his people, let me just encourage you to trust God with it. Trust God's promises to keep you, to bless you in all the ways that matter most. Trust God's plan for us to love and nurture nurture one another through Christ's bride, the church. And remembering God's promise also helps us to stay on mission. Because I don't know about you, but when I look around the southern suburbs, when I think about unbelieving family and friends that I know, it doesn't seem like anyone is giving God a passing thought let alone seeking him out or rejecting him. How are we ever going to see people going from unbelief to belief so that our church grows with new converts? Humanly, the mission seems impossible, doesn't it? But God promises that he has those people that he's calling to himself, that some of your friends and family will be hungry to hear about Jesus. Not because you're a great evangelist, but because God is at work in them. Because think about Abram. He must have thought God's promises were impossible too. He says he's going to make you a great nation, countless offspring. What, 75-year-old me and my barren wife? He's going to, God promised him a, a promised land. What, that land there with all those big scary idol worshippers already living there. God said he's going to give him a great name. Abram's like, what, me? A Bronze Age cattle herder removed from my extended family in my homeland? But nothing can stop God fulfilling his promises. So how do we decide what to do? With our eyes fixed on God's promises, following Jesus' example. I'll finish this with this from Hebrews 12. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the promises that we have in Jesus. We pray you'll help us to know them and believe them and trust in them at an ever deeper level, a real deep change what we do every day kind of level. Please guide us and help us in our decision making so our decisions always show our trust in you and work towards sharing and glorifying your name. Amen.